The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Take a little time, adjust the body. <clears throat> Colleen, if you could turn the top two lights um, about halfway, each one. <clears throat> and maybe while we're stretching, um, you don't have to have a copy of the Wheel of Life, but uh, we'll, at some point this evening, go back to that. So if I do have a few extra copies if you didn't get one two weeks ago. Um, someone could pass them out maybe or you could come up front. And I sent out an email uh, both last week or a couple weeks ago and then again today. So you have your digital copy of this. Thanks. <clears throat> Maybe have uh, the lights even a little brighter, Colleen, um, given that people, some people will be looking at this document. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks to Judy and Anne for hosting last week. How many people were here last week? So, maybe like 30 or 40? 20? Thanks, Tom. You counted, huh? <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad people came back, because uh, this is such a relevant subject. And uh, it's a real empowerment to do, to contemplate like we did during the guided sit. Because what we're doing, a lot of times, not a lot, it's very um, unavoidable really, when we do have enough wherewithal to realize that I'm tight about something, we almost always feel responsible for suffering. Like when I'm, my mind's struggling and then I'm fortunate enough to know that my mind is struggling in some way. Even just, just chewing on something, so even something relatively mild, it always, suffering always feels personal. Any kind of physical, mental contraction always feels personal. Just like feeling free, feeling good, feels personal. But this is what we're directly challenging with this, these sets, the set of teachings, dependent co-arising. We're replacing the idea that suffering is personal. I'm blowing it. I shouldn't be worrying about this. And here I go again. Or it's so cool. My mind is really peaceful. I'm not struggling. 
we're replacing that <coughs> that chronic habit of personalizing the presence or absence of dukkha with seeing it as a natural arising. The presence of dukkha is a natural arising. The absence of dukkha is a natural arising. So it, but it, it takes some training. So the a basic approach that I'd recommend in your sit, you know, do what you can to settle down. Keep doing that, whatever that kind of work of meditation that your mind likes, like mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of the breath and body. And then in that context of kind of grounding in the present moment, stabilizing awareness in the present moment, just be curious about the arising of me with a problem and the cessation of that. And just observe that. If we observe that enough times, it will begin to seem like a natural process. It will start to seem silly, the habit of the mind, that pattern or habit of mind that tags on, I'm doing the suffering or I'm doing the not suffering, right? As opposed to, oh yeah, like when the mind is doing this, then it, there's, there's this whole appearance of this. And when the mind isn't doing that, there's the whole absence of this massive suffering, right? There is this absence of the body and mind being bound up, i.e. peace. So we really start to see those cycles. I mean, that's what's really of value in sitting. It's not about like getting to a peaceful place. It's about observing the natural cycles of the mind as natural impersonal cycles. And from that point of view, the mind becomes a lot wiser about what kind of seeds it's planting and not planting. You know, seeds of craving, for example, or seeds of non-craving, non-attachment. Any, uh, <clears throat> before I go on, any reflections about the, the meditation time and that observation about, you know, like in some of the suttas, that whole mass of suffering. That's just, that's just another way of saying me. Because the sense of self is so associated with being the one who's suffering. It's like, we, you know, we wouldn't necessarily say this out loud, but our real proof, my real proof that I exist is I suffer. How do I know I exist? Because I'm suffering, right? So it's like uh, we want to replace that sort of fixed idea because whenever there's that fixed idea, well, yeah, that's just me suffering, there's a lack of interest. There's a lack of contemplation and curiosity. So we really want to, that's why we need enough safety of samadhi, enough comfort of samadhi, enough ease of samadhi, that's just basic settledness of the body and mind, to be able to do this contemplation, to actually be authentically curious. Any comments from your practice yet, Tim? Hello, my name is Tim. Um, I found it hard to just 
discern if there actually was suffering or not. Hard to discern whether there was suffering or not. People might like that problem. (laughs) Like, how bad can the suffering be if we can't discern? So, it's like, in, in in a way, you could do two things in a moment like that. You could notice subtly what's in the way why it appears that the heart, the body, the mind isn't completely released. You could highlight that. Or the mind could highlight the relative release in that moment. It really matters what you pay attention to. And part of probably what you're pointing to, Tim, is it's not the habit of the mind to be interested, necessarily interested in contraction, that spectrum of full, terrible contractedness of the body and mind, or very, very little contractedness of the body and the mind. We're, we're cultivating that interest. And you know what really helps that interest? Is when we experience peaceful states, to get curious about the pleasure of that p- peacefulness. What we tend to do when, we, when a mind does <coughs> either just stumble upon or even gets quite good at accessing peaceful states is we tend, the mind tends to indulge in the pleasure, which means it's not really paying attention. It's like when we get into a really comfortable bed, we indulge. We don't actually like have that very stable, vivid interest like, Oh, this is what the pleasure of lying in a comfortable bed feels like. When's the last time you did that? Right? We, we want to kind of disappear in the pleasure. So now we're cultivating a different habit around both su- the whole spectrum, really, of um, contraction to the release of that contraction. So here we're really talking about mental pain to mental pleasure. We're getting really interested in that because the thing is, the mind is naturally, it's naturally relevant to the mind. Um, so yeah, during that sit, um, like uh, a lot of times what my practice has been, especially lately, is like finding, uh, this is sort of prompted by something I read in a Tejaniya book on retreat where he's talking about the difference between endurance and equanimity and uh like not trying to like white knuckle through it, but like being relaxed with things. So like uh, a lot of what I try and do is like find like where the like the gripping is or like what can be released and like letting that go. And then during this sit, I became really interested in like trying to see like when that was resurfacing instead of just like come noticing again when there was some like holding or tension. And uh, it's it's sort of hard to describe what what I started to notice was like. It would be like the the sensation or the object that was like causing the the attachment or aversion, and then there would be that like sensation of like trying to like damn the flow or like tighten up or push something away and then I started to see the like the like how those were sort of like part of one sensation, 
and then it would all kind of like melt together and it would sort of like shift and move to somewhere else and it did sort of it felt much more like wave-like than the way that i'm used to seeing it which is just like oh it's like it feels more like a game of whack-a-mole or something yeah because it i don't know if how many people listen to ajahn suchito's talk but um you know it's interesting how you could give a talk on dependent co-arising and not mention dependent co-arising i don't think he did he mention it at all in the talk i don't think he used those words because he was really talking it, uh, talking about this phenomena of our mind or the, f- uh, the um, reality of experiencing something being known, something being not something being mo- known as this very dynamic, he used the word or the phrase shiftings. I like that a lot. You know, instead of highlighting or using impermanence or the changing nature, it's this shifting nature where, because in any moment, you know, it's actually, things aren't fixed at all. And a lot of what we tend to do when we're practicing is we're imposing a lot more structure. We're kind of creating, imagining rather, that the mind-body, the dynamic of me is a much more established edifice than it really is. It's so much more fluid than we imagine it is. Our life or the experience of suffering or the possibility of release, it's very dynamic. It's very fluid. And so when we're suffering, you know, it, it, we mistakenly, presu- we mistakenly uh, impute a lot of substance to that experience. And what we're training ourselves to do is to see it in this more ephemeral, shifting way. Like, yeah, there's a, all these causes have come together, and it creates this very vivid, very lifelike appearance of me who's suffering. No doubt about it, right? But we don't want to make that very vivid image to be more than what it is. In the same way, we can see a movie that is so incredibly compelling the image the sound but it's not anything same with our dreams but it has a very compelling appearance and so it's really interesting how the mind wants to double down on its reality and what we're training instead is to really take a fresh look at how this yes it it there is this appearance, and you can even use a phrase like that when you're really suffering. Oh yeah, there is this very vivid appearance of me suffering right now, you know, and really kind of. But that kind of gives the mind some permission to sort of see how it's all that appearance is all dependent on its, on all the different components. So like a house of cards. It's much more ephemeral. Like if, if any of the things that that appearance is dependent on were to cease, the whole thing couldn't be what it is. And so this is where we're going tonight. It's like, well, what are those particular pieces that the appearance of me suffering, this very vivid, very lifelike appearance of me suffering, me struggling, me, and me not wanting to struggle, it just tightens it even more, what's the sort of 
very particular weak point. And the more the mind gets that, like around feeling, remember that was something I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, or just around fixed view, like thinking that the appearance is more than what it is, that wrong view. It's just an appearance. I don't know if that helps, Andrew. Yeah, John, do you want to go next? Yeah, just a uh, quick question. You mentioned um, it's important to be authentically curious about the phenomena or the passing and the rising of the phenomena. So, Or the dynamic nature, the not fixed nature. Mm-hmm. So what would be... What, it w- what would it be to be inauthentically curious? To be inauthentic would be to somehow, uh, like the mind gets indulgent. It's, it's a very particular, that's why the Buddha emphasized effort, but we, we always think of effort in a blunt way. But there's this other kind of effort that never ceases. And so, you know, nowadays often we use the word persistence because there's a real torment initially because it's not the habit of the mind to remain vigilant in that ongoing way. Because our mind really wants, like we're willing to work hard, but from this point of view, like I'll work hard, I'll get it, and then I won't have to work. See, that's the lie. And that's an ego-based kind of efforting. Like, I'm willing to work really hard and build a big house, and then I get to rest in it. But the kind of effort we're going for is a never-ending effort. And, and, And in so many little and big ways, this is a very key point because it will help you know whether you're basically following the ego and planting seeds of suffering or you're actually walking the path of awakening because if what you're doing in your you know in our what we're doing in our practice if we sense that we're moving in this direction we're more and more committed and there's never going to be an end to the commitment or there never is going to be an end to the engagement because liberation isn't a, a place that then gives us permission not to have to practice. It's like practicing continues forever. It's just that at some point or in moments, practicing isn't personal. It's nature. It's not a problem to be a vigilant practitioner, right? Because it, it isn't a self thing. But it isn't like we ever need to become the one who's done with practice. That would only be an ego-based, diluted-based approach, right? So same with engagement. Same with any kind of effort that we're trying to get done with. Like, God, when the kids grow up. So you should just, like, insert, well, then there will be grandkids, you know, or there will be something else that I'll need to do so that we're not living life in order to be done with the work of life, but we're living life in order to be free doing the work of life. 
that we're not afraid of the work of life and we're not afraid of the work of practice. We're learning to become free in the work of relationships. I'm really trying to get this with my just sort of basic housekeeping because I really see this conditioned habit play out around, you know, just the dirt and the shoveling and and thinking like, oh, get done, and then it will be done. But it's never done. And they're like really, like staying really awake that the dust keeps coming, the dirt keeps coming, the snow keeps coming, the yard work keeps coming. And because uh, I, I, I'm just, I have that mind that just wants to strategize in terms of like choices and like renovations so that I can finally have a place where I don't have to work. And that's delusion. And it's suffering. Because when there's that craving, there's the one who suffers, right? There's the whole entanglement. As opposed to the more embracing, embodied uh, engagement of the work of life. Like really being free in the work of life. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, Chelsea. Hi, I'm Chelsea. And um, I'm sitting here with a lot of questions <laughs> and um, trying to sort out um, maybe some differences between emotional pain and what you're naming mental suffering. Um, and was, I, over the weekend, I attended a funeral of a, a friend who died in a car crash. And, and she was a mother of two young boys. And um, I'm close friends with her husband, too. And he's... Um, He's an artist and was a stay-at-home dad. So um, it's, you know, I'm, I was sitting here just kind of watching the feelings roll through. And then with the question of craving, it was like, okay, well, this, this pain just seems like natural. Like, it's fine that I'm grieving. Um, that's part of life. And... And then the question of like, is there is there a mental craving here? And and it was, um, I don't want my friend to be suffering, and I want him to be okay with this unexpected single parenthood. And and it's hard to tell the difference between like, okay, that's a craving, but it seems kind of wholesome. <laughs> like maybe that's more compassion. I don't know. Um, but does it? Does the uh, n- wish for that person not to suffer, or the wish for that person to find their way at this difficult time, when that wish arises, is there any resistance to that wish? What's the problem with that wish? Um. There, yeah, there was for a bit, and it was that I didn't w- want to accept that she was dead. <laughs> and so I think once I realized that, then the shift became, okay, 
can I just stay here and accept that? (laughs) And, and then when I did it, it felt better. It was like the pain didn't go away, but it still felt better. Yeah. Because what is emotional pain when the mind is, has decided, let's say, or for whatever reason, the mind isn't resisting the emotional pain. What is emotional pain when, the mo- with, when there's an absence of resistance? What is that experience? And most of us know that this in moments, like this is uh, Chelsea's example of grieving is a really uh, more obvious example for most of us because we've all, most of us, have had loss and we know that feeling of grieving, of p- the pain of loss, let's say. And, and we know what it's like when the mind is doing something with the pain of loss, like they say in terms of the stages of grief, now, negotiating with the pain or denying the pain or any of the other sort of common strategies we have when the pain is really intense. And we also, most of us, can remember moments when the mind didn't do anything, just the pain arose, the natural and appropriate pain of loss arose or was there, and then there was also the absence of resisting or denying or do anything with that pain. And it's, it's kind of an, interest, an interesting experience, like you said, Chelsea, where it's still painful. The mind still understands that that pain of loss is painful, but it's like, there's no, it's like when pain, like everything, pain is a movement, right? So it's a movement of emotion, painful emotion. It's moving, and then there's also the absence of resistance to that movement, which it would be experiences of freedom from resistance. The mind is free of resistance. It's not resisting that movement, so there's a freedom. And to really kind of honestly name that freedom as you navigate this place to really na- uh, to name or acknowledge when there's a lot of pain and the heart seems relatively free with that pain and when there's a lot of pain and the heart seems not so free with that pain that's there. And just see what, like if that's helpful to kind of because grieving is going to happen anyway, and you're going to have every, you know, your every response under the sun about what's happening with with your f- good friends. But you might as well then learn, like, how to handle, how to be with this kind of extreme pain. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us. I'm really sad to hear about this family. Okay. Um, I just had a question I'm reading under the Bodhi tree, and he talked about sensual experience, and he references that, you know, a married couple, a husband and a wife. So sensual experience with each other, and then form experience, just dealing with the things of life, and then formless experience, giving and thinking about higher things and more spiritual things. And I'm not getting, is that supposed to be like a progression or... I'm not quite getting what the, what the point 
of that is. So I tonight just may not gross be that. to subtle is a good way to think about that. I'm sorry, what? Gross to subtle. Like our okay. lives exist on different frequencies, and the grosser level is this central level, right? And then there's, you know, the sort of abstraction, the ideas level, right? And maybe even more refined. So just to think about that. Um, one of the things we'll get to in just a moment when we review the will of life is you'll see the realm of existence here in this depiction at six, sometimes it's five, but it's just the different refinements of how we experience life. Sometimes we're really experiencing life like we're in a hell realm, you know, in a very dense, very contracted state. And other times we're in a very ephemeral, walking on clouds, heart in the kind of expansive state. And we're just, we're literally in a different realm than some other people around us, you know, depending on where our mind's at. Yeah. Yeah, Robert, and then maybe we'll go, did you have something too? So we'll go Robert and then to you. Excuse me, Robert. Um, my question is about um, curiosity. Um, for instance, sometimes I uh, will wake up very gently in the morning and then I'll hear my neighbors doing what neighbors do. And then um, I'm listening and I'm, you have to understand I grew up in the time when Radio had all these mysteries on, like the shadow and all that stuff. <laughs> so I have this curiosity inbred, and um, I tend to go there more often than I'd like to. And um, at some point, uh, I realize I'm being curious, and it's not, that's not necessarily bad, but then I'm getting too into it, and then I realize I'm being my worst enemy. You know? And then, <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but I just got a new cell phone, and um, I have someone helping me with my phone and my pad and so forth. But he hasn't helped me because he's been sick. And all of a sudden, bird sounds come on my phone. And, <laughs> and it's the most relaxing thing ever. <laughs> it just takes me right out of uh, you know, being curious. Or, and I go to a gentle place with myself when I hear the bird sounds. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to make us long for spring, Robert. <laughs> yeah, and the mind just adds a lot. You know, uh, one of the things about the nature of any moment, whether we're observing things on a, on a very subtle level or just more the gross level, but because things are shifting alive with change, there's a lot of room because, because of the dynamic nature of phenomena, the conditional and dynamic nature of phenomena, it, it makes it relatively easy for the mind, the sort of creative mind, to map on, to project on the moment, whatever its habit is. 
I don't know if you did this, but uh, back in the day when, you know, using other substances, you know, we could, you can kind of look at something and you could make it whatever your mind was inclined to make it. I'm sure some of you are nodding. <laughs> it's just sort of this little trippy thing. I mean, you don't need drugs to do this, by the way. You just need to kind of, like if you're using your visual sense, you just need to gaze in a relaxed way at a black cushion or a, the trunk of a tree or leaves. And because any of that, any phenomena, so now we're talking about the visual field, you know, it has this changing, shifting dynamic. So we always think this is the sort of ignorant, ordinary view that it, no, 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 leaves are leaves. It's something, it's, and that's sort of set. But it's always a constructed, whatever our experience is, it's always being constructed. And so part of what we're training the mind to do is instead of being endlessly interested in what the mind constructs, like what the neighbors are up to, because that's a creative endeavor that your mind is involved in, it's not just you hearing, but you're constructing a whole, like you have a picture in your mind, right? And, and you're filling in all the details, because that's what our mind does. But the mind could instead be interested in its need to construct. That's craving and dukkha. And interested in abandoning the need to construct and noticing the peacefulness of it. And that's a mind that's been trained by Dharma to be interested in suffering and the end of suffering versus a more ordinary mind that's per perpetually fascinated by its own constructions, which is endless. There's no end to what the mind can construct. And the more you develop your concentration or samadhi, your mind just has better, you know, better production values. So it's like what you construct is more compelling. So there's a shadow to sort of developing your concentration, your practice, in that your delusions will be more compelling. So you need not just to develop concentration, but we also need these skills of like contemplating appropriately. Oh yeah, when there's this, there's suffering. When there's not that craving, there's the not suffering. Yeah, thanks Robert for bringing that up. Yeah, please, say your name. I'm Nikki. Nikki. Hi. Uh, that was a really interesting kind of reframing for the, my question. I'm just, I've been noticing lately and increasingly like during this course, um, it's almost like a trap. <laughs> and that in itself, you know, even as I say those words, I don't know if I'm getting too attached to personal and impersonal. But, um, even if I'm in a relaxed state, and I'm not sure about samadhi or not samadhi, but um, with the vigilance, it's like the more vigilance there is, it almost keeps reifying. There's just this underlying, that really subtle contraction that feels like my attachment to a me. Mm -hmm. And it's like the increased vigilance reifies that. And or highlights it. Or highlights it. Right, it doesn't, I mean, that's what, you're, that's what you'll tease out. 
So it can feel very oppressive. Anybody else have this experience that Nikki's talking about? It's like, just to put it in other words, the more you use the word vigilant, which is quite good, the more vigilant the mind is at being interested in the present moment, it's like all of a sudden what we're going to notice is not just that the mind is struggling now, but we're also feeling the cumulative effects of all the ways the mind has been neurotic, right? So this is the thing about the more visceral, energetic uh, side of the mind-body equation is the body's a lot slower than the mind. Like we can have a lot of mental suffering going on and like a house of cards, it can disappear in a moment. But the imprint on the body, the visceral and energetic effect of my mind being bound up and churning in a certain way, that will live on in the body much longer than it lives on in the mind. So it could be a combination of two things. The mind might uh, continue to be engaged in some sort of craving, in which case, be curious about that. Or it could be that with that vigilance, that vigilance, which is really closely aligned with wisdom, right? The wisdom in the mind that knows it's relevant to pay attention to the present moment, knows that it's suffering and the end of suffering is relevant and it's happening here, happening right now. So, but it's not like if, let's say that's really imbalanced so that the vigilance isn't being controlling, you know, so... If it is, we know what to do, like relax, the controlling part of the vigilance, so that there's curiosity, there's openness, but no kind of like, I'm in a hurry of getting to the bottom of this. So you can tease that out. But even if you're not in a hurry to get to the bottom of it, and and the vigilance isn't controlling, there still may be that pervasive tension that you're discerning. And it may be the cumulative effect of living the day, living the week, the way the mind has been predominantly living. So it, this is why we don't want to open up because we start to sense directly, you know, it's like the karmic seeds that have been planted that we start to feel it. Oh, but it's better to know than to not know because to not know means we just keep going planting those same seeds. But once we get a sense of the effect, on ourselves and on others, it's much easier to make changes. So it's not necessarily pleasant, but it's really good to see. And then the interesting thing, if we can bear the unpleasantness of that and really relax, you'll see moments where that cumulative tension, whether it's being caused right then because your mind is a little aggressive, or it's just the cumulative effect of what seeds were planted previously. But you'll see that that cumulative tension or whatever that contracted experience is, that it's a problem, it's a problem, it's a problem, it's a problem. And then there will be a moment where it's not a problem. And then that will be very interesting to the mind, like what just happened? Right? We have this a lot. This is not an unusual experience. Like, this is a much more subtle level of tension. Let's say something more obvious, like you've got pain between your shoulder blades. So this is a more 
like a problem related to the structure of your posture as opposed to mental habits that we were talking about with Nikki's comment. But even that, even something real concrete like my back hurts, you know, you can be aware of it and how when the mind starts to relate to the pain between the shoulder blades and like fills in the details. I owe, you know, I've been sitting with a bad posture for so long and I got bad chairs at home and you know we and all of a sudden it's like unbearable because we've got not only the pain between our shoulder blades but we've got this whole edifice of a story that we're talking about in our mind, right? And feeling the reverberation of me with a problem, right? But if we just keep tracking, we'll see that at some point there's the pain between the shoulder blades and the absence of it being a problem. The mind is empty of it being a problem, even though there's pain there. Because there won't be any craving or resistance to the physical sensations of that you know, ache between your shoulder blades. So that's really interesting to see that that's why we're tracking because we're really exploring the possibility that there's no dukkha, there's no mental suffering, there's nobody with a problem unless there's craving. I mean, that's like shocking that we can really be free of suffering by simply over time, figuring out how to allow craving to cease. Right? So no matter what our particular set of circumstances in in the moment might be, if there's no craving active in the mind, then there's no body with a problem in that moment. And that's just something that we should check out. Like, is that true? And whenever there is craving, there will always be the appearance of somebody with a problem. So this is especially good when we open to sort of deeper and therefore often more pervasive, seemingly pervasive experiences of dukkha. Like even the loss of the friend, and then you realize this is going to happen to everybody. You know, you kind of, the mind generalizes it. Or we just tap into some uh, more generalized anxiety. That isn't about any particular condition in my life. It's just an old, deep habit of being uneasy. Because then we can, it, it, be, it provides sort of a stable object of awareness. If we have enough um, stability, enough safety to, be, to use that, relatively pervasive, unpleasant experience as our object of meditation. And we can be there, and there will be this general sense of, yeah, this is a problem for me, this is a problem for me, I don't like this, I want this to go away, it's a problem for me. But the more we sort of settle, there will, moments will arise where there will be that, but there won't be any resistance, there won't be any craving with it. It will arise without the craving. Because whatever that, thing we're using as our object of awareness, underlying anxiety, let's just say, right? It's being known over and over again. It's re-arising. It's, it's ha- it, the habit is for it to re-arise. 
So it's always new in every moment and being known and being known, that anxiety, right? And the not liking of it, the resistance, the form of the craving, that also is arising brand new in every moment too. So it only takes one moment where the anxiety is there, but for whatever reason, the mind hasn't replicated the habit, reinitiated the habit of craving, like not wanting that anxiety to be there, wanting that anxiety to be gone. And then the mind, the wisdom in the mind, sees the anxiety without any resistance. Like Chelsea was saying, sees the grief without, or the sadness without any resistance. Sees the back pain without any resistance. And then that's a little insight. Oh, without the craving, no craving, no dukkha. When craving ceases, dukkha ceases. The sense of me having a problem ceases. There's no me with a problem in that moment. And then in the next moment, when the mind, because of the force of habit, personalizes, then the moment will feel like there's personal contraction again. Like, I don't want to forget this insight. And it will be, then the sense of a somebody suffering will be reborn. And this is what we mean by that shifting. It's like we impose a lot of consistency on our experience because we're pretty sure that the suffering me is there, is there, is there, is there. But it's really not that way. It's coming in and out of existence, but that just doesn't make sense based on our ideas of who I am. We think that, like, no, no, I've been a suffering human being all day long, But if we were actually tracking carefully, we'd see there were many moments today of not being a... The absence, the the mind, the heart is empty of there being a suffering mark. But the mind ignores those moments because they're inconsistent with a fixed idea that I'm struggling, I'm still sick. And I got a long to-do list. I got to teach a retreat this weekend. (laughs) <laughs> right so and and I'd like I got a lot of conviction about all of that so then I must be like this because this contracted feeling correlates with that idea I have of me so we're we're realizing that the idea of who we are can be moment by moment by moment we're now so what we're doing is we're um we're giving emphasis to that moment to moment, like whatever is presenting itself, and less emphasis on sort of the conclusion the mind drew, has drawn a long time ago, you know, and imposing that, massaging the data to fit the idea. We're just checking, we're just seeing what the data is saying in this moment, and then in this moment, and then in this moment. Like, is there a suffering being here in this moment? Well, how about now? Well, how about now? Well, how about now? And you see why the mind, th- you know, this is through evolution, makes sense. Like, hey, I've checked. I've done 10 data points. Each time there's a suffering being, I'm going to stop checking and just presume there's a suffering being. Presume there's a suffering being. Presume there's a suffering being. And then we live with that habit instead of actually 
checking, we just presume. So now what we're doing is getting back to just that vigilance. And this is the thing that I said, you know, the effort never ends because we want to check every moment. And so initially, becoming a practitioner from a self point of view is completely overwhelming. That vigilance that it requires. But we stick with it because we don't know a better way. And if we stick with it long enough, as hard as it is, and we're going we're to be imperfectly vigilant, I'm sure you realized. In fact, the more vigilant we are, the more we realize how far we have to go to be really vigilant. So that, it, it's just like so hard to stick to it. That's why so much of what our teachers do is encourage us to keep doing it. Because the more we do it, the more we realize how little we're doing it. Right? Isn't that true? Some of you have been practicing for 25 years. You know, it's like we're, we're really realistic about how rare it is to have some real continuity. But with enough continuity, there's a shift that happens where the wisdom in the mind begins to understand that what actually will promote more vigilance is trusting the momentum of habit instead of pretending that I have to be vigilant. Right? Sort of, if there's a tipping point where getting out of the way promotes better vigilance, then imagining there's a me, the practitioner, who needs to be more vigilant. But initially, we really need to imagine there's a me, the practitioner, who needs to be vigilant. But once at some point we get enough momentum and often we begin to play with this when we're having a good retreat where we really see that 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 me being a good practitioner is actually in the way so we we let it die we let it cease and we realize the practice hums along so much better when i allow that idea that there's a me who's got to work hard in order to be mindful when we allow that to cease. This is why it's always tricky the kind of instructions we get because sometimes we need somebody to tell us, like ourselves or a teacher to tell us, you know, get back up on the saddle, get back to work, bring your attention back to the body, come back to the present moment, see if you can be interested, connect and sustain present moment awareness. And other times, we need ourselves or a teacher to say, you know, hey, it's happening on its own. The awareness, the intention to be aware is already there. You don't need to neurotically claim that you're doing that. It's not helpful. You can let that cease. So I wanted to mention... Um, you know, just a way of understanding the circle. And remember, we use the 12 links, but you could, the Buddha does in the, the 45 years of him teaching, he doesn't always use the 12 link model. So one way to think about it is like mind, one mind, conditioning the next moment of mind, conditioning the next moment of mind. So there's this natural 
codependent, co-arising, right? This natural process that's unfolding. So that means there's past causes. That would be the mind that because of suffering, because the mind is misunderstanding, misperceiving, taking what's changing to be permanent, what's natural to be self, what's neither beautiful nor ugly to be beautiful or ugly, you know, dualistic, taking something to be satisfying that's not ultimately satisfying. So the mind is ignorant, and that ignorance, that misperceiving, it leaves something left over in the heart. So we could call that past causes. Like this moment has been affected by those past causes, the mind being ignorant, misperceiving in the past, and because of that misperceiving, that misunderstanding the causes of suffering, for example, there was something left over, some trace, right? a disturbance in the heart. And so that's like the, the sankara, the concocting fabrications, the second link there, right? So that's, the potter is the picture there. Like there's, there's this, the heart's unfinished. Like uh, that famous line from Trungpa Rinpoche, this controversial Tibetan teacher, one of the earlier Asian teachers here in the West, guy who started Naropa in uh, Boulder, Colorado, was asked, yeah, so when you die, what's left over? Or what, get, what takes rebirth? And he said, it's like your neurotic tendencies. It's sort of, that's that reverberation. That's what's unfinished or the trace that remains. And so those are the past causes that then leads to sort of the present effect. And the present effect is there's this body and mind here. Now, because we're talking about this as a natural process, there had to be past causes, ignorance, and leftover stuff. And then the present effect of ignorance and leftover stuff is I've got a life. And technically that means I have a mind and body. Right? I have the sensitivity of a mind and body. So these are the many of those steps there, right? We have consciousness, that's part of the mind and body. We have name and form. We have the six sense gates, the ways that we're sensitive, the five physical senses, and we're sensitive to, to the mind. And we have contact because of sensitivity, right? And we have feeling. There's nothing we can do all of that, we say, is the karmic fruit of whatever the past causes. The fact that I have a life, the fact that I'm having, I'm exposed to contact, unending contact, all day long, sense impingement, sights, and sounds, thoughts, and emotions. And with each of those contacts, there's a feeling. It's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. You can't change that. So to be complaining about painful experience or like um, you know loss or pleasure that comes our way, that just is the karmic effect of the past causes. 
that somehow there was, let's call it a mind with leftover business because of not understanding clearly. There was something left over and then that led to this mind and body, the sensitive mind and body. And this is the present effect of what was past. Now, this is the tipping point. This is why feeling is right there between feeling and craving because what we do with our karmic situation, being a sensitive mind-body, something is being known, something is being known, something is being known, incessantly, something is being known, something is being known, something is being known. And the question is, what do we do? Do we set in motion craving, grasping, becoming, birth and death, the whole mass of suffering? And the suffering is what disturbs the mind, right? leaves the unfinished business. Or that would be present effects, right? So present I'm sorry, present effects, present causes. So I could be craving, grasping, becoming right now. I could be reacting to my sense contact and the feeling with sense contact in a way that plants more seeds. Like the seed of taking things personal that aren't, taking things personally that aren't really personal. Or imagine something's permanent that's not really permanent or something satisfying that's not really satisfying. Oh, if I could just get home and read my book, you know, and absorb into my new novel. That would be so great. It's a great novel, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, after reading the first chapter, it's like, I just want to sort of enter the space of this person, you know, and leave behind so that leaves an impression in the mind, right? That ignorant idea that the novel can save me, that it will bring some lasting satisfaction, because it won't. It will bring temporary, maybe, temporary <laughs> relief, and then the betrayal when that temporary relief is done, when I've got to go to bed, or I've got to wake up, or something like that. So we have the past causes, we have the present effect, the sensitive mind and body, and then we have the present causes or not. And this is really where, why I gave you that article on desire because next week when we have small groups, it's really talking this transition between being a sensitive mind and body and whether or not we plant seeds that have you know, reverberations that need to play themselves out. How can we have a sensitive mind and body without planting seeds that have to play themselves out? How can we be human beings with desire? Because there's no way not to be a human being with desire. That's our karma, to have desire. Right? comes with the territory of having a mind and body, doesn't it? Anybody find a way to not have desire? But it's like how to have desire without planting seeds that leave traces, that, ha- that traces towards suffering and these basic distortions of perception. Imagine things are permanent in a way they're not, personal in a way they're not, 
satisfying or beautiful in a way that they're not. Remember, just saying that things aren't beautiful doesn't mean that they're ugly. It just means they're they're what they are. They're neither beautiful nor ugly. So that's where we'll go next week. So please read that article by Gil Franzo. It's just a few pages, I think two pages. And then really contemplate the karma of having sensitivity and how you can be really authentic, really clear, intimate. So with contact and desire without leaving any trace. And so the the trace pattern would be craving, liking, like identified with the liking or not liking, and then doing something about the liking or not liking, and becoming the person who did something around your likings and not liking, and all the complications that come because you were the person who acted on your liking and not liking. So we're still going to feel and we're still like, uh, we're still uh, know the difference between what's pleasurable and what's unpleasant. But, and we will still, like uh, in Gill's article, he talks about aspiration instead of craving. And so really, because it's like just having a sense of that natural movement of desire, like we can have the desire to be comfortable without becoming the person who needs to be comfortable. Like how can the desire to be comfortable naturally, like a natural process, play itself out even as it bumps up, you know, your wife has the blanket on the couch. So it's like you got to get up and get a sweater. You know, you reach and then you realize she's already claimed it. So then, <laughs> but see, that can just be a natural unfolding. It doesn't have to become a, somebody with a problem. And that's what we can play with. And just to share about how desire does become somebody with a problem in your small groups next week and how sometimes desire doesn't turn into somebody with a problem. So that desire doesn't have to equate with suffering. That's what we're exploring for the next couple of weeks. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. Thanks, everyone. Nice to be here together. And uh, keep the handout uh, and bring it back next week because we'll use it a little bit more next week. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.